Should we go electric? I think we should go electrified with Toyota. Electrified? Electrified means options. So electrified looks different for everyone. Yup, and with more options for reducing carbon emissions, Toyota is electrified diversified. Learn more about our Beyond Zero vision for the future at toyota.com slash beyondzero. Should we go electric? I think we should go electrified with Toyota. Electrified? Electrified means options. So electrified looks different for everyone. Yup, and with more options for reducing carbon emissions, Toyota is electrified diversified. Learn more about our Beyond Zero vision for the future at toyota.com slash beyondzero. As the old adage goes, change is the only constant. This season has looked intimately at some of the sectors that most need change, like education and aviation, and we'll soon explore more. But this episode, we're thinking not just about one industry or one business, but the evolving nature of business itself. We've entered an era where it's not surprising to hear a tech CEO like Mark Benioff say, we need a new capitalism that is more fair, more equitable, more sustainable. And more and more companies are harnessing their power to make social change. And it's leading to better company culture, which in turn boosts attracting top tier talent. The mindset shift comes at a time when we're all grappling with big changes, like lingering issues around COVID, inflation, global economic turmoil, and more. And people are rightly demanding more from their employers. It all adds up to a crucial moment where businesses have to deliver on their promises to be socially progressive, if not for the sake of ethics, then for the sake of being ahead of the competition. I'm Caroline modaresi Tirani. This is American Metamorphosis. I was the first full-time traveling mental skills, mental health consultant hired in the MBA. My name's Don Kalkstein. I'm the director of mental skills and mental health for the Dallas Mavericks. So what does that mean to be the director of mental skills and mental health for an NBA team? Primarily, my responsibility is to, number one, oversee all the mental health needs from a player and coaching perspective. Now it's it's opened up all the way to the umbrella of basketball operations. So whatever our people might need or our family might need, they would come to me for the assistance. And then the other side of it is a performance side. And I'm in charge of overseeing a performance-based programs for our athletes. Walk me through a typical session. What are the kind of questions that you ask players? Like, what is it you're trying to achieve from each session? Well, to start out, Caroline, the way I operate, my sessions, so to speak, aren't sessions. We've tried to eliminate that type of definition because it conjures up, I think, people laying down, you know, on their couch or coming in and, you know, exposing what they did when they were eight years old and how that, you know, changes how they do now. So um, we try to use a little more of an open uh, dialogue and that would be a chat, so to speak, you know, let's, let's have a chat. Don Colkstein, or DK, as he's known to his players, has been at the forefront of mental health in basketball for more than two decades. He has led a transformation within the industry, allowing for vulnerability in the game. For a long time, certainly as I was growing up, 
there would have been no way that an athlete would have looked into the camera and talked about their mental health. They were untouchables. Whereas today, I feel like it isn't something that would be considered outlandish or unusual in any way. And that seems to be a mark of enormous progress. Back in the 80s and the 90s, you wouldn't hear an athlete talk about his mental health. And I, and I think you were right. I think the vulnerability and identifying a weakness, I don't know that society at that particular point was ready to hear that our superheroes were human. The evolution was more of a backdoor approach where the mental skills people were teaching management techniques of particular items. Let's say we'll use very simple ones of anxiety or fear or doubt to athletes to optimize their performance on a consistent level. And and I think from that point, the athletes then started to open up a little bit and talk more about where did this anxiety come from? And then we started to see there was a need of more qualified clinicians to handle those particular items. No longer was it just identifying particular management techniques for them to perform, but it was more okay, let's talk about some of these things that have been going on for a long time that have been an obstacle or debilitating them as either a person and or an athlete. Basketball's collective transformation around mental health started with a single phone call when DK was working in baseball. I'll never forget getting off the subway to go to Yankee Stadium. And uh, I saw on my phone that I had a, a phone call, missed call, and I didn't think anything of it and went about my day and listened later to my uh, voicemail message. It was like, hey, this is Mark Cuban. I started laughing. I'm like, yeah, right. Mark Cuban's calling me. Sure. You know, which one of my friends was, was making some sort of a prank? But the call was very real. Cuban had a clear vision for his Mavericks, and he wanted DK to help him execute it. When I spoke with Mark, one of the things he talked about was, how do I find a way to give our athletes a competitive edge? The Mavericks stumbled onto a notion that today permeates much of business, well beyond the NBA. That to get the best out of people, companies need to truly invest in them, not just pay lip service to the idea. Today, many athletes are encouraged to speak openly about their struggles with mental health. In fact, the Chicago School of Psychology wrote that NBA players may have done more than any other group to raise awareness about mental health. For the Mavericks, investing in people has been a highly successful endeavour. They captured their first championship back in 2011. What was it that you think Mark Cuban saw early on about how valuable having a mental skills professional such as yourself would be to enhancing the competitiveness of his team? He looked at, you know, mental skills training, performance training as a as a skill set that that could optimize these players and allow them to perform more consistently. And then that morphed us into talking about there's so many things going on off the court that, you know, we're not aware of. And, and how do we find somebody that could tap into that and assist them or, or get them assistance and still keep it uh, very confidential. And when you have a better sense of a holistic and healthy approach, you are a better person, which makes you a better husband, a better father, a better teammate, a better worker. Less days are missed. Productivity goes up. Um, and every everybody benefits from it, not only the ownership and, and the bottom dollar bottom line, but just the uh, culture and the environment that, that we work in. You were the first 
mental skills coach for the NBA. Um, fast forward 20 years later, basically, or thereabouts, how many NBA teams have a mental skills coach today? So what's really cool is that the NBA had put in a mandate a couple years ago that a mental health person has to be available, which was great, like super awesome. That's a huge sea change. Huge, huge. You're asking people to be really vulnerable. So how do you get players to trust you? Many of them have told me, point blank, I don't trust people like you. And I said, look, I don't see why you would. I mean, you don't know me. I don't know you. It just takes time. And as you know, what relationships, trust takes time. I'm not in a hurry. You're listening to American Metamorphosis, a podcast partnership between Atlantic Rethink, the branded content studio at The Atlantic, and Boston Consulting Group, a strategic partner to government and business leaders. In our fourth season, we are talking not just about competitiveness, but resilience. This is a time of great uncertainty, untenable geopolitical tensions, shaky economic forces, and the sweeping impacts of climate change are creating a state of heightened stress and constant change. And industries, institutions, and individuals alike are asking how they can prepare for the unknown while staying ahead. In each sector, that will require redefining competitiveness, measuring not just dollars and cents, but the holistic impacts of business practices and public policy on society. Because learning to adapt today in the face of adversity means pursuing long-term solutions and more equitable outcomes. It means understanding what resilience means on a granular level in order to make big picture change. DK was once a lone voice asking teams to evolve and incorporate what were then taboo ideas. But now he's part of a collective that's investing in wellness. And that's just one part of building resiliency through social responsibility. The other is helping to develop the people and society surrounding it. So when I was growing up, my dad worked at paper plants and he would come home uh, and talk about work at the dinner table. And he would talk about things like wastewater. He would talk about efficiency and reducing power needs. And in the 1980s and 1990s, he wasn't using the term corporate social responsibility. This was just what you did. You tried to make the paper plant more efficient. You tried to have cleaner operations. And that was just part of business. I'm Tim Hubbard, and I'm an assistant professor of strategic management at the University of Notre Dame. So what is strategic management? Strategic management is looking at how companies are run uh, from the executive level. So specifically, we look at chief executive officers and boards of directors. Much of Tim's research zeroes in on how executives' commitment to corporate social responsibility affects their company, broader society, and their own careers. So corporate social responsibility, or CSR, is a investment choices that are made by companies that serve a purpose 
that could be beyond just uh, financial. So it could be societal choices. It could be investments in the community, environment, product, uh, safety, diversity, etc. I feel like today we hear a lot more about ESG than we do about CSR. Are they one and the same? Are they different? So ESG is an environmental, social, and governance. When we look at it from a scientific perspective, I consider them to be the same thing. Back in 2017, Tim published a startling paper on the topic. So we looked at a, a sample of S&P 500 companies and how CEOs that are leading those companies chose to invest in corporate social responsibility. And we wanted to understand whether or not investing in CSR would lead a CEO to be dismissed. Are these investments by, you know, viewed by the board of directors as positive for the company or negative towards the company? And what we found was that if companies had invested in CSR and there was poor performance, financial performance, uh, at the same time, CEOs were much more likely to get fired. So why were these CEOs getting fired? Like, do you have any data on why that would have been? So first, it's important to remember that CSR um, has a societal component, but it also has a component within the firm. So for example, environmental goals have a societal impact as well, but they also have an impact on the operations of the company. So a lot of times when people view CSR, the initial reaction is, well, these are just investments that are only going to help society. They're not going to help the bottom line. And I don't think that's the case. CSR goals and company growth can go hand in hand. They can complement each other extremely well. So when you saw these results, what did you think? At first, I was a little bummed out that a CEO that chooses to invest in social performance, environmental performance of a company uh, is more likely to be dismissed uh, when they perform poorly. My hope was that the investment in stakeholders and building goodwill with these types of investments would have buffered a CEO from dismissal. Uh, and instead, if you interpret the results this way, you could say that boards look at it as wasting money if a CEO makes these investments and there's poor financial performance. And that's, that's a little bit of a different perspective than we want to understand and, you know, kind of build this stakeholder reputation that we're a good company. Since Tim's study came out five years ago, there has been a dramatic shift amongst CEOs and their approach to corporate social impact. So how has the CEO and CSR landscape changed since then? So it's changed dramatically. The relationship has actually flipped. And so while... In our data, we showed that if you perform poorly and had invested in CSR, you're more likely to be dismissed. The opposite is happening now. So the more that you invested in CSR, you do get that buffering effect. Wow. And so it's really interesting to see. That's, I mean, that's a total 180. What do you think is the cause for that? So there's several, several things happening. There's at the societal level, we're seeing expectations for CSR increasing consistently. So that's not only, you know, in terms of what CEOs are thinking about, but it's also what are their investors talking about? What are customers talking about? If a customer is walking down the street and they want to buy a cup of coffee and they have two options, customers now are making a conscious choice to go towards the one that is more socially responsible. Uh, so the neat thing with business practices is that they change over time. You know, what's happening 15 years ago in corporate America is not the same as what's happening in corporate America today. 
So what's the reasoning behind this change, do you think? I mean, is it is it purely consumers changing their mind? Is it activists have, have actually succeeded? I think the the right people are starting to ask for this. So, for example, Larry Fink is the chairman and CEO of BlackRock. In 2022, he wrote a letter to CEOs of the companies that, that he invests in, or his firm invests in. And he wrote in there, for example, that every company in every industry will be transformed by the transition to a net zero world. You know, and he continued, we we focus on sustainability, not because we're environmentalists, but because we're capitalists and fiduciaries to our clients. So here's the CEO of an investment firm that manages over $10 trillion saying to CEOs of the companies that they're investing in, you have to do this. When consumers, activists and financial institutions align, we can see the outlines of progress. It's then up to government leaders to fill them in. So the government as a representative uh, group of the people needs to think long term about society, about competitiveness, about the planet uh, at a level that individual CEOs don't need to think about. Uh, When companies are making choices and making decisions that go counter to societal goals, that's when the government can and should step in in order to make sure that their their choices are aligning with societal needs. Where do you feel that society has made the biggest gains from CSR or ESG so far? I think the biggest gains have been on the environmental side. I think we have a lot of space still to grow and, and be better at it. Um, but companies have been very clear to see uh, changes in environmental impacts. When it comes to diversity and inclusion goals, for example, I I think we have a long way to go. If we look at boards of directors, if we look at top management teams, if we look at chief executive officers, we don't have enough diversity in these roles. And so if we don't have the diversity at the upper echelons of an organization, how do we expect companies to have good, strong diversity at the lower levels of organizations? I think that people aren't trying enough to find the right people. And so this is one of the the biggest areas of opportunity, I think, for corporate America in the next five years. This is something that can be done quickly because boards will turn over. And every time they turn over is an opportunity to change the makeup of the board. I think the world has gotten more complicated. And, you know, if you think about social impact, the definition of that is much broader than it used to be. Well, Caroline, first, it's a pleasure to be here with you. My name is Sharon Marcel, and I'm the North American head of BCG. Sharon is always on the move, which is why, dear listener, you may notice some shifts in sound as we caught up with her to discuss the new era of corporate responsibility. Um, So think about stakeholders, which include employees, but also customers and governments. All of those entities are expecting much more from companies and their leaders. And we're being measured on that. To give you a scale, Boston Consulting Group has 25,000 employees worldwide and works with clients around the globe. As the North America head, Sharon spends a lot of time considering not just what's best for each client, but where their goals may align with those of society at large. And so you oversee an, a sort of, you know, a huge, huge company. It spans so many industries and sectors in business. And with that lens, how do you describe in the broadest way social impact and what social impact the organization has? 
Yeah, I think it's a, it's a great question. Look, social impact, you know, going back many years, was something that was narrowly defined, as, as you mentioned. So you might have a, a foundation which actually contributed to social impact. But today, social impact, if you're a, a, a business entity, um, is defined as your culture and, and everything that you do. So you're being looked at by all stakeholders, your employees, your customers, um, the media, in terms of what you're delivering. And that could be in terms of your carbon footprint. It could be in terms of DEI. Um, but all of your stakeholders are looking at, looking at you holistically to create a culture that delivers um, real impact to society um, you know, at its very core. Again, thinking back years ago, um, it was about financial return. And that was the obligation of the business to have financial return and, and I think to provide a good opportunity for employees. But today the, the expectation is much broader. It's it's about providing not only a financial return and a good experience for employees, but actually helping society overall. In your eyes, what role do companies play in the effort to grow the American economy while also nudging us all towards social progress? DEI is an example of that. Um, and so you Statistically, it is proven that if you have a more diverse workforce, you actually have a more innovative workforce, you get better financial returns. But I'll, I'll, I'll give you another one. I think uh, climate is a powerful example. Um, you know, if you look at the most innovative companies and, and what they're doing around the climate, um, they actually have, have a lot of benefits in terms of top line revenue growth. So green companies have up to 25% higher returns in, in terms of top line revenue than non-green companies, actually greater cost savings. Now, of course, there's investment required, but after the investment, you know, companies that are going for net zero are experiencing um, significant cost savings, and they're being rewarded by the stock market in terms of total shareholder return and increasing more than, than the laggards in their industry. In short, while once investing in society was the non-competitive thing to do, it has become just the opposite. And that may be especially true in difficult moments like this one. Will there be a recession? I think the consensus argument is that there will be. And I think some companies will just need to adapt, some will need to transform. And transformation and even adaption is hard. For Sharon, the most competitive and resilient companies will lean into what she calls the hands, the head, and the heart. Years ago, in terms of change, you know, it, was, it was about the hands, it was about getting the timelines and the workbooks and the templates, and, and we're going to manage the change process. The head, she says, is asking the right questions. We've always been decent as BCG and in terms of the head part. So why are we changing? Why do we have to change? What's the strategic rationale? But the real crux of things is the heart. Engaging their employees and why are we changing as a company? What is in it for you? What is the benefit we'll deliver to you and your family? And what is the benefit it's going to deliver to society? My view is there's a, a, a real and meaningful role that business does play and will have to continue to play in terms of advancing society. I, I think it's an imperative um, and it's just good business as well. That's because in the end, even the strongest institutions or athletes benefit from a holistic growth mindset. Back to Tim Hubbard. This gets a, a sort of a more existential question, I suppose, which is, do you think it's a business's responsibility to look out for the planet and look out for human well-being apart from just looking 
out for their bottom line and competitive edge that they may gain from investing more heavily in CSR? I think with what we know now, it's the imperative of every business and every individual in our society to work towards environmental and social goals. We know the planet is getting warmer. We know um, it's becoming more challenging, you know, in terms of bringing this whole society up. Uh, we know these things now. And so we all have to act. That could be a chief executive officer making decisions. It could be a consumer deciding where to buy coffee. It could be an individual investor trying to decide where to invest their retirement funds. If all of these different groups come together and put pressure, then I think we can all benefit. But if we have an issue where companies aren't performing in the way that they need to, we need to let them know by not buying their products. We need to let them know by not investing in their company. We need to let them know through environmental activism, etc., such that we see the change that's needed. You've been listening to American Metamorphosis. Join us next week as we go from examining corporate responsibility to one we all share, caregiving. And if you've enjoyed American Metamorphosis, please rate and review us wherever you listen to your podcasts and head to theatlantic.com to read more from our interview with BCG's Sharon Marcel.